Dotnet Rocks episode 759 with guests John Bennett, Colin Hicks, and Oren Eney. Recorded live Thursday, April 12th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and we got a very special show today, but uh, some business to take care of first. What's up, Richard? I am uh, working on a little co-camp here in Vancouver with uh, Rob Cartier and uh, Medhead Elmissary, all the local folks. You know, I just don't do enough around Vancouver. I feel bad about that, but... Uh, we've got, you're not going to believe this. We've got Scott Guthrie keynoting for us. No kidding. Yeah. So he's, I think it's the first time he's spoken in Canada, really. He's going to come up and uh, do a keynote about uh, some cloud stuff. How many so, beaver pelts are you paying him? Uh, actually, we're going with the Hudson's Bay blankets there because it's two pelts <laughs> to a blanket. So uh, if you're interested in coming out, it's VancouverTechFest.com. And, uh, we've got, it's going to be held at BCIT, which is one of the local community colleges. Really, it's a, it's a tech center, mm-hmm. uh, April 28th at BCIT. So go to VancouverTechFest.com. And, uh, by the time this show airs, Gesture Pack will be for sale. You've been busy. Yeah. At yeah. Franklin's Net. Uh, if you go to GesturePack.com, you get all the details. It, essentially, for those who don't know, I've been doing a lot of work with the Connect and, uh, the gesture pack recorder is one piece of it, and then the matcher is the other piece. The recorder is a WPF app, and it actually watches your movements and records gestures as files. As a developer, then, you take those files, load them up in your app, and they basically tell the matcher to let you know through an event handler when the user makes one of those gestures. Nice. There's no math. There's no programming. It's just drop-dead easy, and it's a hell of a lot of fun and very time productive. I mean, it's a productivity booster, unbelievable, because you don't have to do any of that code. Yeah, I'm just impressed that, uh, you know, you've sort of summarized movements down in such a simple way that, you know, given movement from one person uh, works for other people as well. Like that, that tolerance, I think is remarkable. Yeah, the key is restricting the joints that you're tracking, because the more joints you track, the more matches you have to make. And also the, the axes. Don't track the X, don't track the Z axis, for example, if you don't need, if you're not pushing forward or backwards. Right. That, that kind of thing helps out a lot. But, um, so it's for sale. It's 99 bucks for a developer license. It's nice. 799 for a site license. Go get it. It's good. Let's, and where do we get it from? Uh, gesturepack with a K dot com. Gesturepak.com. Nice. All right. Better know framework. Hit me. So, you know, there's a lot of speculation in the business world about Microsoft making a comeback, and um, uh, especially with the tablet with Windows 8 and all of that stuff. So this guy summed it up pretty well. Uh, Digital Tonto is the name of his blog. And if you go to tinyurl.com slash win8backontop, the title of his post is Why Windows 8 Will Put Microsoft back on top and it's greg Settel is mm. his blog so and i won't read the whole thing but he basically goes through the 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 reasons uh why both microsoft is strong and why um some of the other people are not doing so well well they're doing well but there's uh there are opportunities that are being missed mm-hmm. and uh it's it comes down to unification you know that's what it's all about if microsoft can pull off this unifying uh, way to get all these experiences together with the cloud on different devices without having to, you know, go into separate apps and separate things and make things talk to each other and it just works. They've got something going on here. So, so that's it. Nice. Who's, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 751. And if you recall, that was Mike Deal talking about data quality services. Yeah. Which I have to admit, it had been a while since we'd done a sequely type topic. And I thought it'd be a fun comment considering where we're going to go in the show today. It was awesome. So this is from Jamie Thompson, who says, uh, Hi, guys. I really enjoyed the show. Thanks a lot. As a sequely guy myself, it's great that you're having guests like Mike on. I was particularly interested in your comments about how it might be possible if DQS had an API 
to leverage the API inside store procedures using SQL CLR. That would certainly be possible. However, I think there's potentially more interesting scenarios that one can do today, and let me explain. As Mike pointed out, one of the most common touch points for DQS is going to be the components that are provided inside SSIS, that's integration services. One of the cool new features in SQL Server 2012 is that SSIS packages can now be executed using T-SQL stored procedures that are provided in the box. Yep. Yes, you can now execute SSIS packages from your stored procedures without requiring XP underscore command shell, which is basically an external call. Right. And they can be executed synchronously, too. So in short, you now have the ability to build your DQS processing into an SSIS package, pass off execution to that SSIS package from inside a store procedure, and when it returns, carry on from where your store procedure left off. Isn't that cool? Right. Yeah. Like it. So thanks very much, guys. I'm looking forward to more SQL 2012 stuff in the future. I guess that's a hint. Mm-hmm. Regards to Jamie Thompson. Jamie? We'll deliver, man. Love the idea. Glad you appreciate it. I like your approach better, too. The idea that you call a store procedure to essentially do a data load with data quality services as well is a good idea. And honestly, anybody out there who's loading data in any way, you got to look at SSIS. It takes some time to learn. That should be your first go-to. Yeah, it's well worth it. Rolling your own is just a waste of your time. Learn SSIS. (laughs) And we're going to... And we're going to... And Warren's laughing uh, we're going to uh, we're going to take SQL questions now. We're we're uh, we're giving up on waiting for Kim and Paul to get around to their SQL podcast, aren't yeah. we, Richard? Pretty much. We'll just do it. We'll just do it. Yeah. Uh, Oren, hang on one second. Hold that thought. I know that you're busting at the seams to get going here, but I need to tell everybody that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts such as those you hear on this show. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month. You see how these numbers are going up, Richard? Yeah. 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. In fact, they have a great introduction to RavenDB, authored by John Somnes. Try nice. Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start just $29 a month. And with that, let us introduce our guest today. Ayande Rahin uh, needs no introduction, so we will not introduce him. he's the man uh end of bio uh i will introduce colin hicks and john bennett because you may or may not know them colin is an architect in msnbc.com's creative development group he leads user experience engineering and develops editorial systems that power msnbc.com and today.com among other properties in the msnbc digital network he joined msnbc.com in 07 at first to produce Flash-based interactives for NBC Nightly News, after ditching ActionScript for JavaScript, it was largely his fascination with Link that led him to C-Sharp and .NET. Before MSNBC.com, Colin worked for a nanotechnology startup and helped produce multimedia documentaries in Europe and South Africa. John Bennett is a principal software engineer on MSNBC.com's platform team, where he builds the systems that run MSNBC.com, Today.com, and other NBC News sites. He's been writing software since 1980 and doing so professionally since co-founding a web startup in 95. He launched the first websites for Variety, Broadcasting and Cable, and Publishers Weekly magazines. He led the development of Parlo.com, which taught English, Spanish, and other languages to people on all seven continents. He later built e-commerce sites for Poland Spring, Arrowhead, and other Nestle brands. And he's one of the many thousands of developers who has failed at writing a good object relational mapper. (laughs) 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 They're, They're piling up like bones. You are not alone. John is passionate about .NET. Agile development, evolutionary architecture, and continuous delivery. He talks about these and other software topics on the team's blog at development.msnbc.com and on his personal blog at jbennett with two t's.com. Welcome, guys. Hey, glad to be here. Hello. Ayande, is your dog going crazy over there or what? Uh, yeah, both of them are actually just 
they're annoying because people are walking on the street. Oh. They haven't asked for permission. Don't they know any so, better? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, anyone who walks down the street right now gets busted. All right, so we're going to have some sound effects in this show. That's okay, as long as we're all prepared for it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Colin and John, uh, welcome. Hello, Colin. Let's hear your voice first. Hey, this is Colin. And John? Hello. All right. Well, I can't tell them apart. Can you, Richard? <laughs> I think we'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out. So tell us how you came to use RavenDB at MSNBC. Well, um, you know, obviously we deal with a lot of content. Um, and so we've got a pretty big content management system that, that runs uh, our sites. You know, we've got a couple hundred editors around the world that, that are creating content and it's being ingested from all sorts of feeds, um, news feeds and wires and everything like that. And, and then we, you know, a- after the editors have done their thing with it, it gets fed out to our sites and shows up as, you know, msnbc.com, today.com, et cetera. And, uh, the, what we found in the last couple of years is, uh, you know, we really don't need a whole lot of relational functionality in what we do. You know, in fact, a lot of the data we stored, each document was stored in a single row as an XML blob. Wow, sure. And, you know, so we're really using um, a relational database to be a key value store. Yeah, yeah. a blob storage. Yuck. Yep. Yeah, and, you know, and that makes things like querying on different properties that are that are nested down in those blobs um, more challenging. Mm. And so we were looking around at what the different options were, and there's there's a million of them. But, uh, you know, Raven looked great for a couple of reasons. One is it has the same ACID properties as, uh, as say, SQL Server, um, you know, for, for saving and for uh, being able to do multiple uh, saves inside of a transaction or deletes inside of a transaction. Mm-hmm. And at the same time... Um, you know, it's got a really nice way to query an index, and we can query on all those different nested properties deep down in objects. And there's a lot of flexibility there. And it's also .NET oriented. You know, mm. it's got a it's it's built from the ground up to be a .NET friendly tool. Um, and a lot of the other options out there, the .NET API is a little bit of an afterthought. I see. Yeah. Did did I and and Anda, did you have to do any special mods for? For Colin and, and John, or was it just an out of the box? Hey, you you heard uh, out of the blue I one day they're using uh, it. They managed to find a couple of bugs. Um, the environment they are running in is usually distributed, so multiple uh, multiple servers, multiple data centers, geo distributed, and all of those. And they actually had uh, a me found that. You had the transit application issue. So, yeah, when uh, we, um, you know, uh, we do a lot of these things inside of distributed transactions because we're working with MSMQ at the same time. And uh, when we were using replication along with the distributed transactions, we ran into a bug. Um, and, you know, it was great because, I mean, the bug wasn't great, but, you know, we, let uh, let Oren and, and the other guys at Hibernating Rhinos know, and within a couple of days, we had a fix. I, 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 yeah. Oren, it's got to be fun that someone's actually pushed your product enough to turn those sorts of things up, too. Hmm. Uh, yeah. The, you just want to say that at some point, uh, we test and test and test, and we really try to do all the, all the crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you have people like Colin who comes and bring me something that we never actually consider. I don't... They have lots of servers all running together in a master, master, active, active scenario. And they run into a problem when they're writing to one server, then all of the, the server try to replicate the other server, and they try to replicate the other phone, and then we had some conflicts and stuff like that. So those were actually the really fun problems to try to solve because just... Because you know that when you got to those problems, you solved all of the, you know, I don't think that we had a problem with, oh, I don't know how, this doesn't work, something basic. It was always, then it was always the, the, 
Oh, you can this, you can this, and this freaking that happened, and something like that happened, and stuff like that. So, I really, I really like when people push the product to that point. And I'm like saying, okay, give me, give me a couple of hours to see what's going on. It's sort of a new high water point, but it, it sounds like we need to talk through the infrastructure you're using here, right. uh, Colin. Like, how many machines are involved? Well, we can't use specific numbers with that, but we have several data centers. Right. Um, and I, I think you know, more machines than, than um, you know, most of the other implementations running Raven. Yeah. Yeah, and we've, our ops team, like all ops teams, likes lots of redundancy. So we have multiple instances of Raven in each data center. Right. Um, and everything is replicated to all of the others so that, uh, you know, at any point, if any of the, the different application servers have to fail over to a different Raven instance, uh, their first failover in the same data center. Right. Um, and if something really goes haywire, then they can fail over across the WAN to a different data center. We're Just replicating the... close to a million documents now, right? Yeah. Wow. Oh. And, and this is all master-master replication? Each of these different data points can be updated as well? They can be, although we use our own application code to direct all the writes at one of the servers at a time. Right. Um, so, you know... We can get that failover, and it's really nice, but we don't want to get we don't want to encourage those kind of conflicts. So we send everything to one place, um, and because we have such a high read write ratio, yeah, that word that works out pretty well for us. Yeah, I mean, are you actually reading far more than you're writing? Oh yeah, I mean, okay, hmm. we'll write we'll read millions of times for each write. Okay, wow. that's that's good. So you I, and when you say you're writing to one location, you're saying one location per data center or one location. It's actually just one. Okay. So you're pushing all rights over the WAN in many cases to a single place and then propagating yep. those updates through replication out to all the other data centers. Yes. Hmm. Boy, if I was your network guy, I'd be annoyed with you. <laughs> Let me get this straight. You're going to take your 100K document... You're going to send it over my WAN to this data center. Then, then that data center is going to send it back over my WAN to all the other data centers. Really? <laughs> all the traffic, the replication, the uh, connection to RavenV and everything, all of that is actually compressed. So you don't actually send the entire 100K. Right. You send like 10K. Wow. Now, is that just compression, or are you doing some kind of delta change? Like, how are you getting it that small? No, we do, we're doing compression. Okay. And because uh, it's text, it compresses very well. Mm. Yes. All right. Yeah. I'm not as angry now. That's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> we and might actually do... We might actually do... We might not actually send it as text. We might actually send it as binary data. So as binary data? Yeah, and now I have to check. So, so you say you have like millions of reads to one write. How often do those million reads happen? Well, more to the point, how often does a write happen in actual time? Would you would you say? We'll get you know tens per second. Um, okay. If if something crazy happens, we might get hundreds per second. All right. Uh, but it's it's not you know. Massive numbers. Now, this is not massive that's, influx of transactions. The replication stream's bigger than the actual initial updates. Yeah, sure. No, that sounds very reasonable. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you all about their support for Windows Azure. Telerik was one of the first vendors to provide support for Windows Azure back in early 2009, when the cloud platform was first released as Cloud Trust Protocol, they now offer everything needed to help .NET developers build quality web, desktop, and Windows Phone apps for the cloud quickly and easily out of the box. Check out Telerik.com slash Azure and take the shortcut to Windows Azure development. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So are, are you guys not using a CDN? Are you essentially running your own distributed infrastructure for all of this? Uh, both. I mean, we definitely depend on CDNs quite a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, the the news, the traffic for a news site is so incredibly spiky. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And occasionally, you're lucky and you know about the spike ahead of time. 
something like an election night. Yeah. If it's an inauguration, um, you know you're going to get a lot of traffic. Right. Um, but there are those times, you know, when, say, there's a earthquake, tsunami, nuclear disaster, or, you know, somebody famous passes away. or Right. Um, where, you know, over the course of half an hour, your traffic spikes 100 times. Can you put hard numbers around this? And I understand if you can't, but I, I just like folks to understand how much scale we're talking about here. Uh, we, we can't get real specific, but, you know, we're talking about uh, billions of page views, you know, nine, nine figures of nine and ten figures of things. Um, in a day? Across the network, that's a month, right? You're thinking right, in a month. In a month. Right. Yeah. But yeah. what's a, and and a spike's got to be in the millions anyway. Yeah. Yeah, oh no, a spike a spike will be a lot more than that. Okay. So most of the time your performance on reads is going to be about as fast as reading a static file I got to imagine. Yeah. Yeah, we really need it to be. Um and and you know, in in cases like that there there's this trade-off we always have to make. Um, we could set the CDN to cache everything for five minutes, mm-hmm. but our editors will get really upset if uh, yeah. our competitors beat them to it because we're sitting in cache. Yep. Interesting problem. I mean, cache is obviously fast, but how long can you cache for? Oh, I'd imagine even if you cache for a second, you got to be pretty, it's got to be uh, helping out a little bit. Yes. Yeah. So how much caching are you doing? Uh, well, you know, on, we've got a couple of layers. You know, we've got the CDN, um, and then we also uh, use output caching mm-hmm. within the applications. And that's just, um, for most of it, it, it's straight up ASP.NET output caching. Um, we have done some customizations there and, and some more complicated things, but we're trying to steer away from that yeah. um, and just use it as it is out of the box. Um, we also, uh, will do data caching, uh, and this is one place where Raven has helped, helped us out in our prior, uh, applications, you know, we maintained our own data cache mm-hmm. using the .NET cache and the output cache, uh, both. So we had those two layers within the process. Um, Raven really helps because it's got the caching built in since it uses HTTP, it can sort of do its own HTTP caching of, uh, the requests from the client to the Raven server. So we don't have to do that ourselves anymore. Um, can you talk a little bit about the architecture of the pages themselves? Are you actually having the page do like a service call straight to RavenDB to fill in the story, or does it actually step through a web server first? Yeah, everything goes to our web servers, the front-end okay. servers. And then they make the requests that they need to back to Raven to uh, get the data. So, I mean, is, you still have a fundamental rendering step on the server before you stream the HTML to the client? Yes. Yes. Okay. I mean, it's just, there's a great debate around, you know, do we do this Ajax thing and talk directly to the service or, you know, does it make sense to do that rendering at the web server? We do quite a bit of Ajax, but we still go through web server, which makes its own call to Raven. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't go in any case directly from the client, uh, a user's client to Raven. And is that a design thing? Is it a security thing? Well, you know, do you see merit and go trying the other way? Like, why do you do that? Uh, I think it's both a design and, and security thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to put the complexity in the right place. And in almost every case, we found that that's in C-sharp code, in MVC, uh, rather than in, in some JavaScript, for instance, right. going back to Raven. If you really want to do something like that, to have a fully JavaScript application on top of RavenDB, mm-hmm. you actually can do that. Uh, you can actually do that with security, with authorization, with all of those sort of things. The problem is that if it's something that works, I just never really got uh, the point of why I want to do that. Because right. In many cases, uh, in just about any application, you're not just doing reads. And if you're not just doing reads, then someone is going to do right. And if this is actually an interesting application, there is some business logic involved in. So you're not just going to let anyone do right. And if the client browser 
is able to just do write against your database, then any user can do any write or any allowed write. And then you lose the ability to do those sort of, uh, uh, this is activity project. Now, you could actually, uh, set validation on this and all sorts of things inside the MDB, but that brings us to 1995 and the server client application where the server client was so procedure that the client was called. Yeah. It, there's an interesting conflict here because on one hand, you want to, you want to simplify things so that they're fast. You want to put more work onto the client to do that actual rendering step. But that basic visceral, we should not expose our databases to the internet is a pretty good reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys have uh, another product in mind before you went with RavenDB? Did you try anything else? Uh, we played around with, with, uh, you know, MongoDB and, and a few others, but, um, I think pretty quickly we steered ourselves under Raven. Um, it just felt, felt better to us. Um, I don't know that we went through a really rigorous, uh, uh, evaluation, but, you know, one of the things we did was get it into production right away. Um, so, mm. you know, even, even before we had this really committed to it, we had it out on our production servers, um, not doing anything. Um, but it was out there. It was getting our ops team familiar with it. It was letting us do some pretty trivial things, uh, making sure we understood it and how it worked and, um, discovered where we were misunderstanding how it worked and, and fixing those problems. Um, and here's the other thing. We're, unlike other news organizations, we have, um, you know, a full on-site development staff and we are mm-hmm, very much yeah. geared toward .NET and it matters that Raven is written at .NET and, <laughs> and you're not like, you know, Erlang or something like, you know, couch. Yeah. So yeah, so it's just integrated as part of your package as part of your deployment. There's just no surprises. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was the first step was, you know, getting it into our build output and onto our uh, regular deployment scripts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not a small piece of the equation, actually having it live nicely with your build process. Yeah. Right. I, I guess the other side of this is, you know, you could have just been writing those XML files to the drive. Searches. Right? Just store them as separate files and let IIS pick them up and, and you know, file system as data storage. Uh, you couldn't really do that. Why not? Um, not I know the people who have done that. Actually, Google site moved from just the system, having lots of XML files into RavenDB um, several months ago. And the major reason is that just having dumb files sitting on the disk is wonderful for performance. But the problem is that, A, what happens when you have a lot of them? And file systems are usually very, very bad at having large number of very small files. Yes. And another problem is and not even, uh, another problem, not even considering classical sizes and weight searches and stuff like that. How do you do searches or something like that? Uh, let's say that I'm going to give, to, uh, save all of my orders. And my orders, uh, have a, they're just an order document. I'm going to save that. How do you find all of the orders for customer, uh, for the customer who, whose name is John? Yeah. And that's something I actually want to do. And uh, if you just throw it into files, then you have to provide your own solution for doing that. Yes, to build your own search mechanism over top mm-hmm. of the file system. you got to get creative with the file names. Yeah, but there's only so much that you can do uh, Well, yeah, and, and I think your core, your core point there, Oren, is solid, which is there are things you expect out of a database that a file system doesn't do. You're not going to have mm-hmm. transactional integrity. You, you're not going to clean up properly. You're, you've got, now you own all those problems. And uh, I'm just thinking about trying to do searches on top of a file system is a non-trivial problem, especially when you start thinking about, okay, wait, how do you handle concurrency? How do you handle a, how do you handle triggers of trying to update the file? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do you, how do you handle that? So, as all sort of really, really annoying, annoying, annoying stuff. The large, Part of RavenDB is actually dedicated 
to making sure that this is handled properly. Let's uh, and you so you. I mean, again, I, I love this point. What happens in Raven DB when two people want to write on the same document? Uh, that depends on what sort of flights you're trying to do. Okay. Uh, the simplest thing and the different one is you're trying to do a full document replacement. So, and this is the easiest thing to do because uh, you load the document, you make some changes, and then you come to save it. Now, uh, let's say someone else went ahead and modified that document. Yep. And this is the classic uh, two objects coming in. The default behavior is last right wings. And yeah. at that point, you're going to override whoever uh, else made those changes. Right. So you don't necessarily hold a lock on the document when somebody's got it? No. Uh, you could actually do that inside a system transaction transaction. Mm-hmm. And you could get it so you actually lock that record for modification. But that is generally a bad thing to do. No, it's not very scalable. But yes. And, and i got to think in MSMVC's situation that lock collisions aren't that likely either. How Probably often not. is more than one person going to work on a document? Yeah, it's it's pretty rare. The the editorial workflows manage that for us pretty well. Right. Um, but there are cases, um, you know, such as our integration with older systems or external systems, mm-hmm. where we wind up um, we we wind up unavoidably getting the same document multiple times at the same time. Right. Yeah. Uh, and in those cases, we um, you know Raven helps because the because everybody's writing to the same place, we will get. Um, and, and some of these things we do in transactions, and we'll we'll get a nice exception that says somebody else has already created or updated that document in a transaction, and mm-hmm. right. that transaction's still going on, and you lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can handle that and, and do what we need to do. Um, and in the case where it's not in a transaction, you know, if two people read uh, and then they both try to write, um, there's a, a simple optimistic concurrency setting that will check the e-tags on each of the documents. And so the first one will win, and the second one will say, you know, sorry, your e-tag isn't current. Right. Um, and then we can deal with that as appropriately. Yeah. And, and the main thing is letting people know that something's failed. The scary part is one person writes, then another person writes, and the first person's changes are just lost, and nobody knows they've been lost. Right. Well, and, and as you say, you work your workflows tend to tend to prevent that from happening at the same uh, I mean and that's really where you got to catch it it's like hey you know somebody else is working on this uh right now maybe you, you should give them a call or, or send them a message or something bill bill vaughn famously said on .net rocks and i think it was one of the early shows before 10 or somewhere on there uh when we were talking about concurrency in adio.net and you know what do you do when you have a collision he says well i'd like to work on preventing the collision in the first place you know most people are like you know how do you what do you do after the collision? It's kind of like the New York City Transit Authority showing up at an intersection and saying, all right, where are we going to stack the bodies? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of trying to avoid that in the first place, just using your the smarts of your app. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's what we try to do. But in the cases where we can't avoid it, we get a really nice concurrency exception yep. that tells us just what went wrong, and we can deal with it. Yep, easy to sure. do. Not the big deal everybody thinks it is. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list, like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing but it's also got PDF support, so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. We haven't really dug into this whole bunch, but you know, you, you get a sense of how the news business works, that there's lots of stories coming in. There are very short deadlines. You're constantly updating things. Uh, you know, speed is of the essence for the performance of the web page. What am I missing here, guys? What's hard in the MSNBC business? What's hard is that we have to create um, differentiated products. 
And that means that you can get a news story from Google now uh, via the AP. You can get it from so many sources. So it's a, it's a, just taken alone, it's a, it's a commodity. So we have to add value to it. And we do that through the user experience. Um, and we have to think about our, uh, our approach to ad sales and, mm-hmm. and all these things. We have to make decisions about that. So the product development process uh, around this really matters. And I think what we found the last nine months of using Raven is that Raven has added a ton of agility across sort of all facets of product development and not just um, software development. So it's been really interesting. And I think, um, you know, the, the benefits we've seen there are just a reduced cycle time. Um, we're, we're, it's actually pretty incredible. I'm, I'll put on a stereotypical hat here and say I'm the crazy JavaScript kid who, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, came to .NET, uh, fairly recently, but, uh, is now, uh, em- embraced, um, in, you know, in, in our, you know, more formal, um, technology department as someone who can do this stuff right, uh, and can, participate in product development mm-hmm. um, from the user experience to the back end. So we've, we've reduced some handoffs there that were um, kind of hurting us across the process. We, we don't always know what we're developing from a product standpoint at first, uh, and it's, it's helped a ton that we haven't had to upfront decide on schemas and um, try to get our domain model 100% right. We've sure. evolved that over time, and even some of our core documents uh, that we're Running live in Raven right now, I've probably changed thirty times uh, on the on the way to to production. Um, so that all feeds back into you know that agility feeds back into trust in the business, and uh, of course uh, delivering better products to to our users. And th- those changes aren't done. <laughs> yeah, they're never done. But being really tolerant to it, being able to to be quick to make those changes, let people cycle faster. I think that's really smart. We'll talk more about RavenDB at msnbc.com. But first, Richard, you know what time it is? Must be that happy time. It's the happy time where we get to give stuff away. Holy cow. Have we got a big stack or what? We have three big things to give away today. Well, actually, two big things and one kind of cool thing. Okay. The first thing is a RavenDB t-shirt. Compliments Ah. of Ayande Rahin. Right, Ayande? Uh Uh-huh. All right. And the winner of that is Gary Alexander. And uh, congratulations, Gary. Well, be well done, s- Gary. We'll be golf s- clap for you. Yeah, small golf clap. <laughs> we'll be sending you an email soon. Uh, so if you haven't got it and you're listening to the show, check your spam filter. Yeah, there you go. Uh, What's the next? winner of the Telerik Ultimate Collection today is mm-hmm. Jeffrey Fritz. Jeffrey Fritz, well Jeffrey done. $2,000 worth of goodies. Yeah, $2,000 worth of software from Telerik. It's all their stuff. It's actually a $7,000 value when you put it all together. And also, we're giving away a free pass to DevTeach Vancouver, May 28th through June 1st at devteach.com, Vancouver, British Columbia, not Vancouver, Washington. Yep, and, and I winner, think we invited all of the winners to come to the barbecue at my place. That's right. You're, you're doing the speaker dinner? I'm doing the speaker dinner. At your and place. I, and I think our contest winner should come along Absolutely. with us. Absolutely. Stephen we, Harrison won the last one. And today's winner is Neil Hardesty. Congratulations, Neil. Looking forward to meeting. This is so much fun. We've we'll been coming out. I love giving stuff away. Get it's to good give fun. stuff away. And if you don't know what we're talking about, join the .NET Rocks fan club. Go to .NETrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button up in the upper right-hand corner of the page. And uh, just sign up for the fan club. We want to know a little more about you. And we'll give stuff away every show, including five grand worth of technology, which we're going to give away in December. Mm-hmm. So I get to build you something cool. Yeah, we're going to, and it's handpicked by the toy boy and myself, <laughs> of course. <laughs> All right. All right. Enough there of that. goes another prize draw. Where were we? Let's talk about the spikes and surges that come up uh, when you get under load here. So, unexpected news story drops. You've got writers, right? I mean, it, it's basically reporters start feeding stories into the system. How quickly do you know that you've got a problem? Um, Pretty much right away. I mean, we know the, the, the editors certainly know when a story is going to be big. Mm-hmm. Um, so as, as soon as they hear about it and it starts breaking, you know, they'll give the ops team a call and say, get ready. Um, and they'll start 
pushing out updates. They'll start with, you know, a five or six word banner across the site for a really big story. Right. Um, and just evolve it from there into the, into a full blown story and maybe multiple and videos and slideshows and everything else. Now, are the, each of these different documents or do you update the same document over and over again? Uh, it depends, but a lot of the time it's the same document. So there'll be, mm-hmm. you know, one document representing the text of that story and it'll get updated again and again. Right. And, and I mean, I've seen that with reading these stories where it's, you know, with an update, you know, corrections, those, the things that happen in a, in a breaking story, it was such a race that stuff gets, has to be fixed. Yeah. I mean, it almost turns into live blogging whenever there's a, a big news event like that. Sure. And your websites are actually distributed. So how big a deal is the replication to Raven DB? Like, how is there, is it close? Like time-wise, to keep all that stuff in sync when you push out an update like that? It is. Um, you know, it's certainly less than a second, even across the country, mm-hmm. um, across the continental U.S. Um, you know, we, don't, we haven't found cases where the replication has gotten behind in any significant way. Right. I guess the question is, how, what, you know, there's a monitoring side of this. How do you know when a, when a database is missing that you shouldn't be reporting against it or a WAN link is down? Uh, well, all of the network stuff, you know, our ops team has got a pretty close eye on. Um, and, and, and also, we, um, as part of the applications we've been building on RavenDB, we built an admin UI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that helps them see, you know, for each of the different databases, um, you know, how many documents are in each instance and uh, which instances are replicating to which other ones, and they can change all that stuff on the fly. Sure. Um, you know, and if they wanted to take the right master down for maintenance, they could repoint everybody to write to a different one gracefully rather than having it fail over. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. So you can just, you just say, okay, that guy's now master, everybody switches over, and you can take this guy down. Right. Ah, that's the way it should be. I like that a lot. All right. Now, um, Obviously, uh, a flat database, a NoSQL database, isn't isn't everybody's solution. But uh, in this case, it, it's a really good solution. Can you tell us about um, your how much your your licensing is? Can we talk about that? I don't see why not. Um, and you know, I I'm not the guy who writes the checks, so um, I may be off. But I think it's on the order of five or six thousand dollars we've spent on licensing. And that's maybe, a one time a one time license. Uh, I'm not even sure. Iande, um, what's the what's the scoop here? Uh, yeah, two stories. So we have been running on um, reduced licenses for about a year and a half. So the coin price is six hundred dollars for a regular license. Uh, we're going to remove the to, to remove the reduced price. So. We're going back to full price, and then the price is going to be thousand dollar per uh, license for the standard edition. And we're also going to have another edition, which is going to be enterprise edition, and that one has, you know, more can use more CPUs, can do a Windows cluster support, and other enterprise features that are really, really annoying to write. I don't like clustering. Yeah. Windows Cluster, so on. But, uh, yeah, the basic idea is that, uh, uh, the, the RavenDB, uh, license is going, is actually divided to three major ones. Uh, you have the standard one, which is basically the one we expect most people to use. Uh, and that one is going to be a thousand dollars. The other one is the Enterprise Edition. That is if you are running Enterprise systems, you want to do clustering, you want to do, uh, um, you know, 256-bit encryption, compression, both of them. Uh, and then we also have the basic option, which is something like $5 or $10 a month. And that is if you just want to run a website, it's size limited to... The the other than that is full functioning. All right. So, needless to say, it's significantly less than SQL Server. Uh, just a bit. 
But uh, what about SQL Server? What's the role SQL Server plays in this app? Have you got a back-end reporting database out there or anything like that? Uh, we don't yet, but um, it's certainly something that you know we, we know we might need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and SQL Server still plays a pretty big role in our infrastructure in a lot of other ways. Sure. You already own the licenses. But uh, I, I guess the question is, you know, the nature of the data you're collecting here in the form of, of these stories, it doesn't really lend itself to reporting really anyway. Yeah, I think we'd be more likely to be reporting on activity rather than on the content. Right. And there's a whole other stream about that. It's got nothing to do. You really don't need to connect Rave, your RavenDB to the SQL Server in any way for that. Right. Interesting case. I mean, it's you just you've clearly outlined an example for me of where this approach to data storage makes so much more sense. And it's not just a price thing. It's just this was right. designed to do this. Yep. Yeah, it totally wasn't a, a, a cost issue for us at all. It was um, just that, you know, our business domain is around documents. And right. So a document database made a lot of sense. Yeah. Yep. And 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 I think the other piece here is speed sensitivity. You need speed, lots of it. Hmm. Yeah, we need the ability to um design as we go and to be mm-hmm. able to make a lot of changes, you know, on a weekly or even daily basis. Um and not having to lock down a schema um ahead of time makes that a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I think um and Colin can probably talk some more about this that the the niceness and the simplicity of the API uh, in the client makes it really easy for folks who might otherwise stay in JavaScript mm. to make their way into C Sharp and start saying, oh, you know, I need to load this or I need to do this query. And they learn a bit, a little bit of link and they can be, you know, doing a lot of the work directly against the database. Right. Sure. Totally. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those developers who's just ecstatic about this and the power of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the chance to sort of connect the dots that, that used to exist as handoffs to other teams. Uh, so you said that you don't use SQL Server currently in, in, in the back end for reporting or anything, but do you have a reporting solution? Do you need a reporting solution? Is the website the report? Um, no, well, we have, um, you know, analytics is a huge thing for us. I mean, the, the two things we haven't talked about much at all that are really, really important and have a big impact on every project are um, the advertising and the reporting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we use third parties for both of those things, but that doesn't mean it's not a lot of work for us to sure. figure out how to interact with them in the right way. So let's start with the advertising. What What's the challenge there? The challenge is page layout. We uh, differentiate ourselves in the ad sales space by offering different tiers of um, ad layouts, essentially. Mm-hmm. It means that you get a, a set of ads. Um, if you're if you're a sponsor, you get to um, show your brand message across a number of display ads on the page, and those the size and um, layout of those ads varies um, according to a cost structure. Uh, so we have to make decisions on the server side to uh, restructure the markup of the page uh, based on the the ad. Um, you know, we call it an ad package that's been sold against a, a particular section of the site for mm-hmm. a given amount of time. And do, are you actually storing the ads in the RavenDB as well? Uh, not at the moment. Mm-hmm. We we are moving that direction. There's some ad configuration um, that that does happen there, um, but we're we're migrating our our ad documents over to actually, well. you know, what about in the images and graphics and all those things? Are they part of the document in inside of the data store, or are they handled separately? For ads specifically, or for or other and even stories. For stories, we're we're storing references okay. to to images and videos, right? Uh, and for a, you know, when we query for uh, the document that contains those images and videos, we'll include those documents in the same request. Right. Is is what's sto- actually stored in the RavenDB? Is it is it actual markup? Like it's it's HTML? For the the body of let's call it a, a story, mm-hmm. we store the markup in Raven, um, okay. but we don't store the the fully sort of exploded markup for 
uh, images or videos, we store uh, a an element in the markup with right. a data attribute, which points at another document. And, right and I presume you got CSS being applied to it and, and so forth. Yep. Okay. Uh, I guess the last thing to hit on then is the analytics side of this. It, or that, I don't imagine that's got a lot to do with RavenDB, but analytics has got to be huge for you. Yeah, we're, it's, it's a huge thing across the company. Um, here again, this, this has little to do with Raven, but we, we need to, we need to play the analytics game on a, on a couple levels. One is, mm-hmm. uh, editorially, we need to know what's trending, um, you know, at the day to day level and at sort of the macro level. Uh, we need for, uh, our advertisers, a way to report on their um, ROI, uh, and then there are competitive rankings that um, you know put us up against other new sites in our category. Uh, the, <laughs> there are a potpourri of providers, and they're all third party at this point um, that that allow us to do that. And and to be honest, there's no. Uh, there's no way to describe it other than that as, as a, you know, a, a big blend of different solutions that, that at this point, different teams are working on. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants slightly different instrumentation from, from ops to the ad buy team to the compete team. Like they're all going to want different things. Yeah. And the video team, you know, is different than uh, other things. Uh, it's, it's pretty, it gets more complicated than you would think it should be. <laughs> yeah, clearly. I've definitely been there. It's way harder than you thought. Yeah, everything seems like it should be really simple when you look at it from the outside, but you get mm-hmm. into the nitty-gritty of, you know, well, this advertiser needs a special thing over there, and the analytics on this, you know, Flash Interactive or this mm-hmm. video needs to be tweaked in this way for that particular case, and it gets a little crazy. Well, guys, thanks for joining us for this hour. It's been it's been fabulous, and it's Andy, congratulations. I mean, what a customer to land. Wow. And what a case study. Fantastic. Guys, thanks again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com.